Now Playing Podcast is brought to you by Butler Brothers. Red alert. Red alert. Red alert. You crossed my line of death. You haven't dismantled your MX stockpile. Pakistan is threatening my border. That's it, Buster. No more military aid. Nuke them. Get them before they get you. Another quality home game from Butler Brothers. Nuke them. I'd buy that for a dollar. All Detroit has a cancer. The cancer is crime. We need a 24-hour-a-day police officer. A cop who doesn't need to eat or sleep. A cop with superior firepower and the reflexes to use it. It gives me great pleasure to introduce you to the future of law enforcement. You call me RoboCop. This is now playing's RoboCop Retrospective Series. I like it! Hosted by Arnie. This guy is really good. He's not a guy, he's a machine. Jacob. If he just talked things out with people instead of firing that big gun of his. And Stuart. You're perfect. I must have you. Their prime directives are serve the public trust, provide detailed plot spoilers, and use harsh language. Bad language makes for bad feelings. Listener discretion is advised. Oh, yeah. Go get him, boy. Today we're discussing RoboCop, starring Peter Weller, Nancy Allen, Dan O'Hurry, Ronnie Cox, Kurtwood Smith, Miguel Ferrer, and directed by Paul Verhoeven. I'm Arnie, the co-host of Now Playing, and I am a repeat offender. I repeat, I will offend again. <laughs> no doubt. Stuart in L.A. And this is your part man, part machine, all podcasting host, Jacob. And this is it, guys. We are in RoboCop. To me, RoboCop's like a classic. Like, there's The Godfather, there's, you know, 2001, and there's RoboCop. They all exist in the same, you know, category. <laughs> but then I go to IMDb, go to their top 250 list. Since City's on there, Shutter Island's on there, no RoboCop. Like, apparently, uh, maybe in the minority with my fandom and my love for this first film. I, I do enjoy the franchise as we get into it, but this first film... I am in love with. I think it's a great film. I think it deserves to be a classic. And really, I am approaching this. If this film does not get into the top 250 after this podcast, I have failed. That is my goal. That is how much I am into RoboCop. But you know what? The funny thing is, I didn't see it when it came out in theaters. I was 10. There's no way my parents were going to let me see this. You know, this ultra-violent, hard rated sci-fi action movie. At 10 years old, there's no way they were going to let me go. I knew about it. It was all over. I had the video games. You know, I knew there were toys and cartoons. It wasn't until my teenage years that I first saw this. And, you know, oh, that was an awesome. It's a robot cop sci-fi action film. Awesome. But it wasn't really until my college years where I sat down and started watching this repeatedly and really getting into it and really seeing the different layers that I fell in love with the show. So it's something that came much later, even though it's something that had been around since my childhood. And I finally caught up and recognized the genius of it. And so here I am tonight to help you guys out and our listeners. And I guess I'm playing sort of a newbie role. Now, I, of course, I have seen RoboCop, but only once and only when it first hit video back in 1988. I remember liking RoboCop, but yeah, to hear you, Jacob, talking about it being one of your favorite movies, man, I just, I didn't remember it that way. I just think it benefited from low expectations. I want to point out, you know, now it's accepted RoboCop is cool and a cold film. When they were pitching that movie, people were laughing. 
It was the name. People thought it sounded stupid. And, and admittedly, in trailers that were running at the same time, batteries not included, Harry and the Hendersons, you would just think this is another dumb Spielbergian character. A robot that's a cop. Just another buddy cop thing. I had no expectation that it would have this sophisticated satirical level to it. And I probably was a little too young for that when I saw it. I saw the first RoboCop. I liked it. I saw the second RoboCop. I didn't like it. And then I promptly forgot about this series. So I'm coming back pretty cold. It's been decades since I've seen a RoboCop, and I'm looking forward to it. And I'm somewhere in the middle. I definitely have a fandom of RoboCop, but... I remember when RoboCop came out back in 87. I didn't see it in theaters. I don't know how aware I was of it in theaters. I might have seen some trailers, but where it really started to hit me is they had this really inventive home video marketing program where on all the video stores I'd go to, they'd have like the security sign on the door that says, this facility protected by OCP. And I started getting more intrigued by it. And so the day it came out on home video, I rented it and fell in love with it. I will say I probably watched this way younger than I should have. I think I was 13 when I first saw it. And I probably watched it no less than 50 times before I could drive. But I kind of fell out of love like you did, Stuart, after RoboCop 2. I saw RoboCop 2 in theaters. And then I just had a nostalgic love for RoboCop, but I haven't revisited it all that often. I think the last time I watched it was probably 15 years ago when I bought the brand new DVD at that time, and I haven't gone back since. So I'm the lapsed fan who I've still had a RoboCop action figure on my desk for the past 10 years, but I haven't seen the movie in 15, so I'm anxious to return to old Detroit and see if it's as good as I remember and how I could view it differently, like you say, Jacob, as an adult versus loving it as a teenager. And this is Paul Verhoeven. You guys talked about Verhoeven for Total Recall, another movie that I really love, but a director who, you know, I kind of like Hollow Man. I kind of have a guilty pleasure in Showgirls, but not really a uh, go-to director for me. Yeah, I don't think he has a whole lot. I mean, there was a a period in time, you know, between the late 80s and the 90s where, uh, come on, Total Recall, RoboCop, Showgirl, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man. I can't go there with you, Arnie. But I I think he had a pretty solid body of work. I am not familiar with his stuff from his home country that he did before that. But this is the film that really made him a name. And I think... Total Recalls would kind of cemented his name as far as American moviegoers. You left Basic Instinct out of that, but you know I re-watched that recently. Not very good. It doesn't hold up, but yeah, there was a brief moment of time. This man made his mark on Hollywood. I think he brought a certain level of sleaze and satirical fun to genre movies, both sci-fi and sex thrillers, and... Yeah, I've only seen one of his Dutch movies, The Fourth Man, and it was really kinky and weird, and I kind of liked it, but I'm I'm not sure why. (laughs) It was (laughs) it was out there, and I could see why you would watch it and want to bring him to Hollywood. This guy had something unique, and I think that he, for a brief moment in time, Hollywood listened, and now they don't seem to be listening that much. I think he might have 
trouble finding funding for his projects. But who knows? He's one of those people that could always pop up again. What's funny, Stuart, you're saying this has got that kind of corny name, RoboCop. Yeah. You know, it was a blessing and a curse. It's a corny name, but it also tells moviegoers exactly what you're getting. Like, RoboCop, it's a robot cop that you know what you're going to watch. But that name was so toxic, they couldn't get an American director for this film. They tried to get almost every major American director that had a name in Hollywood at that time. They all turned it down. They go to Vorhoven. He reads 20 pages of he's like this is stupid i'm not doing this it was his wife who convinced him to do it she read the whole script and said you need to go back and read this whole thing there's something to this and so he almost passed this up but i'm gonna make the argument without him we don't have robocop he's gonna set the tone for what a robocop film should be and i think we're gonna see his mark even when we get to prime directives i think we'll see still little bits of traces of verhoven there the question is will we see it in this new theatrical release That is a big question. PG-13, I'm guessing not. But why don't you uh, give us the plot? It's 2029 and Detroit has only gotten worse. It's overrun by crime and the city is bankrupt. Not too far off from the truth. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) (laughs) To help with both measures, the city has outsourced the police force, allowing it to be run by Omni Consumer Products, or OCP. You down with OCP? You know me. OCP is a mega corporation that has its fingers in all areas, including military contracting, and they've been able to profit in many unusual sectors. And their next step is to remove the human element from law enforcement and instead police Detroit with robots. Senior Vice President Dick Jones favors the fully robotic enforcement droid ED-209 product, a giant heavily armed bipedal robot that could be deployed as police as well as in military engagements. But when ED-209 malfunctions, killing an OCP exec, young up-and-comer Bob Morton wins out with his cyborg RoboCop project. OCP takes the body of Officer Alex Murphy, recently killed on duty, and uses his brain and face to build RoboCop, a cop with the targeting and speed of a computer and the duty and years of police training provided by Murphy. And he's programmed with three directives, serve the public trust, protect the innocent, and uphold the law. RoboCop instantly and violently starts to stop crime in Old Detroit, but he's tormented with flash memories of his human life, including his wife, his son, and the gang of criminals that killed him. RoboCop begins to go rogue, tracking down the gang, only to find out that the gang works for Dick Jones, and RoboCop's classified fourth directive is revealed. Any attempt to arrest a senior OCP employee results in shutdown. RoboCop is attacked and damaged by Ed-209, but aided by former partner Ann Lewis, RoboCop first kills the gang and then presents video evidence of Dick's crimes. RoboCop is still unable to arrest Dick until the OCP CEO says, You're fired! Allowing RoboCop to shoot and kill Dick Jones. And when the CEO asks RoboCop his name, he replies, Murphy, as credits roll. Very high level, we're gonna get into it, but... Yeah, I mean, this is Detroit in the then far future, the now all too close 2029. And did Verhoeven get it right? I mean, the city did declare bankruptcy. One of the most fascinating cities in America today. I am totally flabbergasted what has happened to Detroit. Yeah, the home of the automotive industry. They saved the cars, but the town has gone bankrupt. It is a portrait of urban decay and renewal that is just amazing. And yeah, that we're going to have this story here 
I'm so excited. You know, again, there's a lot of satire, and I think this was part of it. I, I'm trying to think in 87. I know this is around the time the Japanese started taking over the car industry, and there was trouble with American cars and all that. But I don't think anyone would have ever thought Detroit going bankrupt, the auto industries going bankrupt and having to get bailed out by the government. I mean, that was funny. Ha ha. You know, just imagine how bad it could get in America. Well, here we are ahead of time. <laughs> Head of schedule, you know, American Ingenuity already bankrupt in Detroit. Oddly enough, though, film isn't in Detroit. I always thought they would have filmed this in Detroit. This is in my now hometown, Dallas. Really? Yeah, this almost all filmed in Dallas. There's a steel mill. Of course, that's from Pittsburgh. But almost all of this in, is in Dallas. The reason Vorhoven chose Dallas, he just loved the skyline. He didn't like Detroit skyline. He didn't think it looked futuristic enough. Yeah, I actually have known this for a long time. Architects love to build in Dallas because Dallas is ugly. There's nothing to draw your eyes. There's no mountains in the distance. There's nothing but their architecture. And so the most visionary architects want their buildings in the great wasteland of Texas. <laughs> I don't know if I'd say wasteland, but yes, it's very flat. There's not a lot of mountain scenery to look at. But no, Dallas does have a great skyline. And, you know, that was one of the things that impressed me. Now that I know RoboCop was filmed there, I found a website that lays out all the different spots. So I think I'm going to take a weekend and, and hit all the RoboCop filming areas. It really is uncanny. I've visited Dallas many times and I've been to the OCP headquarters and several other places and taken photos. And I feel like bringing out Ed 209 figures to put there. You'll have fun, Jake. <laughs> but I think that one thing Verhoeven does so well with this movie is this world building. It starts off with a news report, and that's going to be one of kind of the trademark storytelling things that RoboCop does, is setting the world through these news reporters, one of whom is Lisa Gibbons from Entertainment Tonight, if you remember her. She was like a name that was digging at my brain when I'm watching this. It was around the third news interlude. I'm like, Lisa Gibbons! Where do I know that name? But that's who that is. Oh, of course I remember. Wow. Sleeza is was her nickname. <laughs> she she was a pioneer, I guess, of tabloid television trash, basically, yes. And with the commercials and these news reports, I am totally sold on this 2029 world of crime and corporate greed. I mean, keep in mind, this was 1987, and I'll make the argument that this is very much an 80s movie in many ways uh, when it comes to OCP and its view of corporate culture. I mean, this came out, what, the same year as Wall Street? And has somewhat of the same view of corporations, but the way that it takes this to the nth degree and says, if this is how we are in the 80s, where will we be in 2029? What will the world be like? I'm completely sold and can understand what this world is like. Yeah, they not only got the future Detroit right, I think they got the media right in this film where, you know, it's maybe that this is how it was in 87 as well. I don't know. I didn't watch a lot of news as a 10 year old. But, you know, you watch the news today. It's very stunted and just it's more entertainment than anything. It's not there to inform. And the, it doesn't surprise me they got an Entertainment Tonight host to do this. I mean, that's how it feels like I'm watching the news now. It's all based on how white the host's teeth are and how nice their hair is than how they're able to, you know, eloquently speak and inform the news. I don't think I got the joke until watching it this time. You give us three minutes, we'll give you the world. Exactly what that implies. You don't really care. You're going to give them 180 seconds to tell you what you need to know. That's headline news and internet journalism all over. 
Yeah, CNN, this was the dawn of that network and the whole idea of packaging the news and making it safe and fun. They do a great job with that here. I think that's kind of easy. What I really love is the fact that these news bits, even the stuff that isn't directly related to the plot, becomes threads, become running jokes that a car commercial that we're going to see is later going to appear on the streets and gets blown up. And that they set things up, the comic timing of, well, first the space station is malfunctioning and there's no gravity and this was an embarrassment because the president was visiting. Well, next time it's going to set all of Santa Barbara on fire and kill two retired presidents because it malfunctioned. I think that it's such a generic device to have news tell us what's going on. They've done a great job of integrating it and making it fun, making me look forward every time these news reporters appeared to see how they're going to spin uh, what's going on. It's really a blessing for this franchise, or at least this episode. And I think it's a testament to how well they're written and how well it's executed. This is an action film. Aren't we supposed to have a big action scene at the beginning? That's how action films start. But no, we go straight into news. We go straight into exposition. But it's entertaining. It grabs your attention. But you have an action scene, a minor one, within five minutes, because it goes from there talking about crime-ridden Detroit to the Detroit police station where Alex Murphy is situated, and you'd think he'd get the big action scene. He's the star of the film. It really goes to Nancy Allen? Carrie's Nancy Allen gets the big (laughs) kick-ass scene? (laughs) Yeah, not one of my favorite actresses. Anyone that's heard my uh, Poltergeist 3 review knows. Not a big Nancy Allen fan in general. I think she lacks gravitas, but she works in this world. She's introduced with a fight. Why not? I think that's a good way to go. She certainly isn't a gifted vocal actress. So yeah, introduce her (laughs) with some action. Yeah, what I do like about this, again, I I think Verhoeven's very conscious of how the characters look and how they're portrayed. I mean, this I think this is the role of the director. You have what's on the script, but then the director comes and interprets how that's going to look on the screen. And there's no way that we could have a love story with this guy with, you know, he's a robot by the end of this film and this woman. And so here she is. She's played very tough. She's got short hair. She's got the body armor that really flattens her out like you know if you weren't paying too much attention you probably think that's just another dude fighting until she takes off the helmet i I like that there's some thought going on here that hey we don't need to be bound down by this love story so we could do something with this woman we can make her tough we can make her a little non-conventional and and have her take on you know more of a tomboy role she's snapping her gum and blowing bubbles and all that well jacob i wouldn't credit verhoven with that too much as this was his second choice last minute replacement for who he wanted in the role my single digit years tv crush stephanie zimbalist who's that you guys remember Remington Steel? No. Pierce Brosnan. I, I remember it being on. I never saw it. The long-haired brunette who was his partner on that show, who I was totally crushing on when I was like eight, nine. She was supposed to be in this role. Remington Steel had been canceled, so they hired her for this. She was all ready, and then they exercised an option to force her to make a bunch of Remington Steel TV movies. And so Nancy Allen got part. Mm, this is the same reason why we don't have Tom Selleck as Indiana Jones. Okay. Sometimes it works out for the best. I don't know, Stephanie Zimbalist. Maybe we missed a real opportunity here. Not a Nancy Allen fan, but I think she gets through this. I think you're right, Jacob. She's not the star of this, but it's really interesting that we start the movie with her getting the action and our hero kind of just passively walking through, getting a dead man's locker. It's a stoic way of introducing Peter Weller, but then again, is there any other way to introduce Peter <laughs> Weller? 
Man, this dude, when I saw him, you know, really watching it for this review, this guy walks in. You know, I had just recently watched Cronenberg's Naked Lunch, where he plays a junkie William S. Burroughs. He was thinner than a junkie William S. Burroughs here, and I I had to think, oh, this is because they needed someone small to get in that suit. You know, Peter Weller, I feel that despite all the stuff I've seen him in, including Naked Lunch, I think that RoboCop defines his career, because where do I see him most anymore? It's primarily on, well, Star Trek. He was on the Scott Bakula TV series, he was in Star Trek Into Darkness. He seems to be this actor who will be hired for sci-fi action roles because people look and remember him as RoboCop. I don't know that's the career he wanted, but it's the career he got. I I also think that's why he got Screamers, a film that I really like. (laughs) Yes, Peter Weller became typecast as a sci-fi guy. I think he always had one foot in it, even before he got RoboCop. He had goofy cult movies like Buckaroo Banzai or this horror movie with a giant rat that was living in his apartment of unknown origin. That was the one I knew him from before I saw RoboCop. But two things about Peter Weller that always stick with me. Those damn eyes. Those steel blue eyes that just cut into you. They just, no matter where you are, it seems to be staring right into your soul. And then he just has that stone face. You know, it's even angular, like he's been chiseled. And he just gives you nothing except those eyes. And I think it's perfect. If you're wanting to cast someone that is robotic, here is someone who is taken being passive to a whole new level. It's almost zen how calm and stone-faced this man is. Well, that chiseled face, that jawline is what got him the role. They needed someone with a great jawline because that's all you're going to see for the majority of this film. You know, they wanted someone that would stand out in that way. I always remember his lips. I know that sounds weird, but his lips stand out to me because that's what you are focusing on, at least when I'm looking at him, because that's the human part that you see most of the time. You know, it was because he was thin, because he had this great jawline that he got the role. They were thinking about Arnold. And they ah. thought about Michael Ironside, They're, but they were just too big for, to make this suit work. They said this, they would have just looked awful trying to put these big men. Look at Mr. Freeze, and yes, they were right. That's <laughs> <laughs> eh, tight casting. Arnold was the Terminator, so let's make him this robot. Ah, uh, no. I think the idea is you want an everyman, an average guy. I'm not sure if Peter Weller is totally that, but he seems humble and he seems nice. He's coming in from a different, kinder precinct. Somewhere else in Detroit, they don't have much crime, apparently, but he gets transferred for reasons unknown out of there into this precinct. This is his first day in the hood. What I find funny about Peter Weller, though, Stuart, is you say he seems humble, but (laughs) my understanding is, on the set, he like decided he was going to be in character and you could only refer to him as RoboCop and he had a mime coach and got all pissed off because the suit didn't work right and Verhoeven just laughed at him just just laughed yeah he took mime lessons and wore hockey pads to prepare for the role and then he can do his mime motions in this suit yeah you're absolutely right Arnie The, the funny thing is when he had the mask off he was to be called Murphy when he had the mask on he was to be called RoboCop Unless there was a cute girl asking who he was. Then he went by Peter Weller. (laughs) Yeah, so I I always did kind of... I remember when he didn't come back for RoboCop 3 and reading the interviews of the time of RoboCop 2. I just always kind of thought in real life the guy was a douche. (laughs) Just he, He felt he was too good for RoboCop. And I think that was the case even during the first one. But... He does make a good Alex Murphy. We don't get much time with Alex Murphy, you know? We don't even get to see that he's necessarily a good cop. We see he's a good father because he 
twirls his gun because his kid wants him to. <laughs> I like that. He's a good father because he's got a gun. <laughs> we don't even see that he's a good family man. It's implied because he's thinking about his kid. But no, it's amazing how efficient the script is. They got to get you to him being in the suit pretty quickly. So yeah, we're learning so much about the world. We don't have time to learn about the man who will be RoboCop. And I th- think they've done a good job of just making him feel sympathetic. That is one of the things that surprised me. I felt like in a bad version of RoboCop, we would have spent 45 minutes with the background and getting to know Murphy. So we really sympathized with him when he died. No, here he's only human for a very short time. And I think that's because the focus here is about him in robot form trying to regain this humanity back. We don't care about who he is when he's Murphy. It's when he becomes RoboCop. That is the focus. And I think that's a tougher route to go. You have to get us to sympathize with them very quickly and, you know, in a short amount of time, we have them as a complete human. And what's funny is it's not like it's in the first 10 minutes that he becomes RoboCop or anything. It's that we're spending so much time with all these other parts of Detroit. I think we spend more time with OCP than we do with the Detroit Police Department in these first half hour because this is where really all the setup is happening. Murphy being a cop is incidental. What's important is what's happening in the boardroom of corporate America, OCP, and their attempts to make police enforcement cheaper so that they can make a bigger profit based on the city's paycheck with one of the great robots in cinema history. I'm going to stand there and say, Ed 209. (laughs) Oh, sure. Ed 209's cool. You got no problem with me. I wouldn't want him to be walking around the city streets of Los Angeles, but yeah, as a character for a movie, it's a good idea. As a cop that you want on the street, I can see why you might have some reservations. Even before he proves that he can't distinguish when someone is and isn't holding a gun. Well, I'm actually referring a lot to the design. This design was by Phil Tippett. People know I'm a Star Wars fan. Phil Tippett designed the AT-AT in Empire Strikes Back. Very similar. Won the Oscar for the even more similar ATSTs in Return of the Jedi. And here we have them take it to the nth degree in this badass and hysterical droid. Yeah, for as much as this film is about a robot cop, I really feel like this is where a lot of the heart or where a lot of the joy from the film comes from in this boardroom with Ed 209, you know, going crazy, shooting up this exec. And and I I love the line. Somebody want to call a paramedic after like this guy's just been pummeled with bullets. It's in just the back and forth, the satire of American business and big business and these corporations going on. I, this is the stuff I really enjoy. And I don't mind that we're pulling away from Murphy and Lewis to spend some time here. Yeah, I'm really intrigued because what we're promised here is a utopia. We have seen enough of Detroit at this point to know that starting over is not a bad idea. What is Delta City going to be and how are they going to get there? It's an interesting debate. It actually, this works as science fiction. How are they going to clean up the streets? What is the best way to enforce law so that they can have all these people have these new jobs? There seems to be, even though, yes, there are lots of tweaks about how the suits are cold and calculating and unfeeling, there seems to be a general concern that we can all get behind as they're debating about what kind of model of robot to go with. Yeah, I don't think that in these early scenes, it necessarily plays like the corporation is evil. And in fact, I dare say in this movie, OCP is not necessarily evil in intent, but they're 
pointed out as evil indeed. And I think that is where the satire you're pointing to, Jacob, comes in, is that, you know, you get in this corporate tower so high above everything else where what you're jockeying for is a promotion and you don't think about the fact that you have these things out there that are actually causing people's lives. I mean, whether you're working at a senior vice president for a mortgage company that causes people to lose their house from subprime lending or commissioning ed 209 droids it's all just business but i really love this i've got to give some complete kudos to casting one actor i knew the first time i saw robocop one i didn't the one i knew ronnie cox i knew him from beverly hills cop probably more famously known for deliverance and i think he really has the weight to play this hard-ass businessman dick jones yeah, you say, and I agree with the OCP. They're like just any other corporation, you know. I think they're amoral. They, they sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. But come on, Dick Jones, this is a villain. We dislike him right away. This is all about a military contract. This is he doesn't care if they work. He he wants the repair contracts, the parts contracts. He just wants to screw the city, the state, the government, whoever out of their money selling these faulty robots. Right. We get behind Miguel Ferrer because Ronnie Cox is so obviously bad. I think that's what he sells here is that he, if he's going to stand behind this tank patrolling the street it doesn't even look like a human if that is going to be the future of law enforcement then we know that this guy is unfeeling inhumane so i think it's great right from the get-go it puts us on the side of miguel ferrer we'll find out later that maybe isn't a great side to be on this is satire this is a world where everyone is deeply deeply flawed but from the get-go because we're trying to figure out who to root for, we're behind the RoboCop program, we think Miguel Ferrer has a more humane solution. I think we're with him, though, because of the age we are and everything. He's the young exec. I don't know that in the 80s anyone would be behind the other executive either. I think Miguel Ferrer, that was the one who I learned in this, and every time I see him, I will always go back to him playing this role in RoboCop. I mean, even when we reviewed Iron Man 3 last year, and every time I see him, it all comes back to this role for me. But he is just as cutthroat as Dick Jones. When Dick Jones shows a opening because Ed 209 kills him, Bob is right there to go right up to the old man and pitch his idea and say, that's how you do it. Even though it was one of his friends, one of the guys he went up to the boardroom with is the dead one. It doesn't stop him for a second from pitching his sales idea. And what's interesting, I've never caught this before, but he drops a line, you know, and I agree. I think we do get on Bob Morton's side a bit. Even the writers and producers, they were surprised how he ended up kind of looking like a good guy throughout much of this film. They always wanted him to be a villain, too. But, Stuart, you said with Murphy, he kind of gets transferred. You don't know why. Well, Bob Morton, he drops this line that they're ready to prototype RoboCop because they're placing prime candidates in the most dangerous parts of Detroit. Ah. So they actually transferred Murphy there in hopes he would die. Oh, wow. I didn't pick up on that. How clever. But it isn't surprising. Later, Miguel Ferrer reveals his entire character. To be ambitious, certainly in the 80s, wasn't going to cite you as a villain. So I don't think that you would think of him in that way. But later, with the coke and the hookers, and certainly the way that he's insensitive about putting Murphy back together again. Uh, yeah. But I also just want to point out here, the third man in the room, he doesn't even have a name. It's He's just the old man. Is that correct? Yes. Yeah, the yeah. CEO. That's the head of Silver Shamrock. He got a promotion. <laughs> 
And what's funny is I get a Reagan vibe, kind of like the clueless Alzheimer's head of this corporation. That's what they were going for, kind of this, you know, Reagan administration where he doesn't really know what's going on. You got, you know, arms being sold to the Iran Contra, that whole affair. And, you know, I don't I don't have any memory of that. That, that, That's really the vibe I got off. I think it's kind of subtle, but it is there. Ooh, that makes Dick Jones George H.W., which means in (laughs) Robocop 2014, George W., Dick Jones Jr.? I perhaps best not to extract all of that, but that's interesting. I mean, Reagan obviously would have been a, a target of satire at that time. He did loom over the 80s largely. I, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, privatizing industries, yes. and here we go, private police force. That's exactly right. That's what I think of. The, the privatization, uh, he was big behind that. I don't feel like, however you feel about Reagan, you know, as satire or heroic, I do feel like this guy comes off pretty good in the end. Maybe it's because he's clueless, but he shows more compassion. When this suit is gunned down, he's actually the one to say, no, we're not going to put Ed 209 on the streets. Dick Jones is willing to go for it. He thinks they can get in there with a monkey wrench to turn a couple screws and, and still put this thing out. This guy, he does at least show enough sanity to know that you got to go with something else. You can't send in the tank. And so they're going to try the Robocop program, whatever that is. He doesn't know that it means a cop, yeah, losing his life. Now, I do have a question here. Why is it, and it's sort of a design one, why is it that they need a human in the suit at all? Is it so that it presents the idea of something warm and friendly to other people? Is it comforting? They drop a line, though, about the experience and the duty, that it would bring the experience of a trained street cop versus having to program it all in from the beginning. Okay. Yeah, I always thought it, it was a shortcut for the programming because it would have that human brain that it's tapping into. Okay, so eventually they may want something that's fully automated, but just sort of as a catch-up, if you will. It fills in the gaps by having that muscle memory, literally. Yeah, because from my understanding, and, and this is always kind of hazy, but basically they need to clean up the street so they could bring a construction crew in to fix old Detroit, build Delta City. They, I guess they don't want a lot of crime going on. They don't want their construction workers getting picked off by muggers. Yeah. So that's why they've got to clean up the streets with this robotic police force. Yeah, no, yeah, all that makes sense. And like I said, it makes me feel like, okay, we may be dealing with a company that's inept and, and has soulless participants, but in and of itself, the project is not flawed. We would like to see Detroit helped. We would like these poor people. God knows there's enough bad news happening all around. We would like to see somebody help out. And I think that's why we're with Murphy. We don't really know him. We don't see him do anything heroic, but we like him because he seems like a sensible man. And we believe just because of who he is, that he wants to make it a better place. But he doesn't get a whole lot of time to do that. His very first case is to track down Clarence Boddicker and his gang. And Clarence Boddicker, if you don't know who he is, I guess you're a dumbass. Kurtwood Smith, the father from that 70s show. Here's the funny thing. I know him from this and from that 70s show. He's a dick, but everyone swears like they're like, oh, no, he's actually the nicest guy. I would not get that from the roles I'm most familiar with. him. He's just he's so evil and just so mean and, and it's such an asshole. Yeah, I think of him actually as the insensitive dad uh, in Dead Poet Society whose son commits suicide. That's right. Oh, yeah. that's right. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I, I forgot uh, 70s. Show. Yeah, I think he just 
he plays that sort of unctuous type here. It's, all that said, I don't think of him as necessarily being a crime underworld heavy. I mean, I think this is a, a step up for him. I, he usually doesn't portray that level of fearsomeness. A pest, yes, but I wouldn't think of him as being your main bad guy. What I find funny is of this gang, when I first saw RoboCop, I knew none of them. But now three of them are major actors to me. Kurtwood Smith being one. His second in command is played by Ray Wise, who love is a, Twin Peaks. Yeah, yes. Twin Peaks. Swamp Thing. Swamp no. Thing. <laughs> Don't love Swamp Thing. I think there have to have been some casting people in common, having Miguel Ferrer, Ray Wise, and Dan O'Hurley all here and all on Twin Peaks. Sure, yeah. But, yeah, you've got Ray Wise in second command. And then also in the gang is this guy, Emil, who a decade later would be a regular on ER, a show that I watched through to the end. And he was Dr. Romano, this jackass surgeon. Yeah, he was also on uh, Fame, the movie. Yeah, that's where I knew him from. There's a different role for him. Yeah, again, didn't think of him as a mohawked punk, but yeah, it's a fun gang. And it is fun to recognize people going back. I didn't remember that this gang was anybody, but now they all feel like familiar faces. And they are a fun gang. First of all, they're multi-ethnic. I mean, there's some whites, there's some blacks, there's some Asians. (laughs) Crime knows no color. They they all come together in the pursuit of free money. And I just love how ruthless they are and really how inept. The gang, when we first see them, they've just robbed a bank and they burned the money. But there's a lot of people in this gang. But every encounter, a couple of them get killed. And sometimes by each other. One of them here, Bobby, gets shot in the knee. They just happily throw him out of the truck. Yeah, this is where we start to see that Vorhoven ultraviolence sort of play in here. This is where you say that this movie has an 80s vibe to it, and I get it. There is a sheen, much like Robocop. The exterior is firmly in the corporate mentality of the 80s. But at its beating heart, underneath it all, there's a real, like, seedy 70s vigilante film living in here. There's a midnight movie quality. This movie is sleazier and dirtier than your average 80s sci-fi movie. I think of a lot of 80s sci-fi being sleek and shiny, and this movie feels like Death Wish to me when we get in with the bodies being thrown against the windshield and just the way the gang teams up against Lewis and throws her off. I mean, yeah, it's tough here, particularly when they shoot off his hand. I mean, this is a grindhouse film. This was X-rated. Really? Yeah, there's two cuts of this. There is the original X-rated cut and then the theatrical cut. I didn't know that, but I can believe it because it did push the button. I I was surprised at the level of gleeful evilness uh, to it. Well, that stays the same, but it's the amount of gore. I mean, Jacob, you mentioned that scene in the boardroom with the guy being shot and how funny it is when they say call an ambulance. And the theatrical cut, you might have thought he could survive because you just didn't get those extra shots of the corpse being punctured and riddled with the bullets. And with Murphy's death, you don't get the close-up of the hand exploding. I mean, the MPAA cut this to shit. And it's hard to find the theatrical version anymore. Verhoeven is so much behind his vision of it, saying the MPAA made his comedy horrific. Because by taking out the excessiveness, you don't get that it's a joke. And so it... Pretty much the only one you'll find is the unrated version. Yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting listening to Verhoeven. I, w- I want to know more about this guy because 
he is known for this sleaze. I mean, come on, showgirls, and we talked about it in Total Recall, this excessive violence and the this sexuality. I mean, Lewis gets punked because she looks at a dude's dick, right? Like, he's going pee, she pulls her gun out, and he's like, can I zip up? And she looks down, and that's when he punches her. It, what's so interesting, though, is that then Verhoeven's going to turn around, he's going to make this a, a Christ story, and, and it sounds like reading on the guy, he's on a, with a group that, that's like with scholars of the Bible, and he's really into studying Christ. I don't think he has a traditional, you know, like Christian interpretation of it, but I find the guy fascinating. I mean, living through World War II, he really sees this dark side to humanity that he does want to play up in these films, and I think all of his films. He doesn't see this utopia that other, you know, I, I will say liberals will see. A lot of times they call this film fascism for liberals. You know, we're going to make this perfect society, this Delta City, but we're going to take these extreme measures and there's a seedy underbelly and these robot cops that we can make do whatever we want to get there. It's He plays with the two sides and, the, and these dichotomies. Just I, That's what fascinates me is we're going to talk about Christ in this film, but here we go. We get to the crucifixion and this is a violent crucifixion. I mean, the hands blowing off. As compared to those nice calm crucifixions. Well, come on. Those were just some nails through the hands, a crown of thorns, a spear in the side. The most painful way to die in history. Yeah. (laughs) What I'm saying, though, if you're watching that, I don't think it's the same as watching a guy get blown. I mean, he is so excessive when, especially in the X-rated cut. I mean, you see an arm go flying off. His hand gets blown off. I mean, it's very violent. But I think that is what makes this film. And I think when next week, when you get to RoboCop 2, a film that's just as violent, it's shot differently and the way Verhoeven does it here is what makes the film it doesn't feel out of character from like a midnight movie like I I would say something like Repo Man or Trauma Films or something like that this kind of splatter is something that I expect to see in that kind of movie what's weird is that this is a mainstream film that this is being released in regular movie theaters not from a major studio it's Orion but there is something about this that feels culty and i think that that's the vibe that i'm really digging here that's to me what the vorhoven does is that he sleazes up mainstream entertainment what should feel safe and commercial in other people's hands really does feel like an indiscretion and they did try to get alex cox writer director of repo man to do this he said no no they try to get everyone to do this that's pretty bad if alex cox wouldn't do it (laughs) I think he was working on something else at the time. Walker. Oof. That no one's heard of. Yeah. Oh, it's terrible. But I agree with you, Stuart. When I was 13 and watching this, the extremity of the movie fascinated me. To this day, I'm a kind of person who wants boundaries pushed. And when I was 13, I was into horror. I'd watched Nightmare on Elm Street and all of that by this point. But I had never seen a movie as sadistic as RoboCop was. Now, as an adult, I see what you're saying, Jacob, that this, it goes out the other side. It comes in as gore and violence and comes out the other side as a parody of gore and violence through the excessiveness of it. I mean, you get the feeling that Verhoeven isn't fetishizing the violence. He's laughing at it. It's mocking American violence by going so extreme in this way. But on both levels, it works. And that is the genius of it. This really defines how I want the violence portrayed. And it's because I saw this film as a teenager and I just loved 
how far they pushed it. I'm like you, Arnie. I just thought it was so shocking, and now I love it just so it's so over the top, and that's what I like in a, a good action movie. I like it pushed over the top. I've talked about it in other films we reviewed. I almost like it when it gets into that comic book area, and it's just so excessive. And I also really love the makeup effects, though, because it wasn't until this time watching the film that I finally just picked apart just in watching how they blew his head off because they really do a great job with the makeup. This is a low-budget film. I mean, Stuart, you say it's a mainstream film, and it is, but it's still a cheap, low-budget film. But the production company, Verhoeven, they stretched every penny. This film looks far more expensive than it was. They also bought just about every condom in Dallas to make squibs. (laughs) Perhaps that's how they saved on money. Maybe that's what they, Verhoeven said the condoms were being used for. <laughs> this is Verhoeven. Yeah, I, I agree. We, we'll never know what that budget really uh, was put to use for. But I will say this. The scene is highly effective in getting us to feel Murphy's pain. The joke of it is, for me, is it's only just beginning. You thought it was bad the way he died. Wait till what happens next. I actually think it's more horrific what happens to him after the gang disappears. He's taken away on a gurney, and we just see sort of bits and moments, both memories, fantasies, and what's actually happening to him as he becomes the pawn of Miguel Ferrer and the RoboCop program. Yeah, I thought it was weird. I'm like, there's no way this guy would be living. Why are they even operating on him? But I guess there were ER people that said, no, they get people that have been shot in the head all the time, and they're able to get them to some kind of at least vegetative state where they're on a machine alive. And they actually got a real ER crew to just, they just said, do whatever you would do if a person like this came in, and they just filmed it. Wow. I would think that if you saw somebody in that many pieces, you would just give condolences to the family and call it a night. But, okay. I love that they're debating about whether to save the left hand or not. They're like, it's functional or not. Uh, Nah. We don't need it. You know, it's ultimately, that's when we turn against Bob, is because he's like, eh, cut it off. It'll, it'll be more symmetrical that way. We He doesn't need it for what we're going to use it for. Yeah, that line did catch my attention this time, because I'm interested to see what they do in this reboot, where they've made it very obvious that he does have one human hand. I'm like, I wonder if they're playing off this scene, where they have this debate if they should get rid of the arm or not. <laughs> yeah, I do love the way they film these scenes, though, going all first person, seeing it from Murphy's point of view as they're talking about wiping his memory and loading his programming. And I find it funny when they boot him up as a computer guy. I know all those terms. I mean, they basically just booted a system, command com, load bias. This is all old school DOS. <laughs> yeah, I will say this. I do feel like these moments are lifted. They, they took a visual cue from a sci-fi movie that had come out just a few years before that brainstorm i don't know if you ever saw that one but it has this awesome cinematography in which basically people record their dream states and all of this stuff here the wide angle lenses and the way that he comes in and out and and tapes his experiences as he's coming back to life i do feel like there's a little cue there to brainstorm but i love it i really do think some of my favorite moments in this movie are when we see yeah just just bits. I love they take the plastic off and we haven't seen what they've done to him yet. We fear the most and we just see him briefly walk by a monitor as he's going through, but it's his first person. I just think the buildup to the reveal of showing us 
what Peter Weller has become is great here. I think it's just, you know, obviously we know because we saw the poster, I, I, but I can pretend, right? If this were my first time seeing it and I had no idea <laughs> what was going to happen next, this would be amazing. Yeah, I do find it funny. They talked about they wanted to do a slow reveal of the suit, but I'm like, come on, people saw trailers, they've seen posters, but I guess when you go into making a movie, you don't you don't think about that. I do like, again, here's some efficient storytelling. We're getting this first-person view, but we're learning about RoboCop. Okay, he could record. He's got Google Glass, apparently. They predicted <laughs> that. We see that he has prime directives. We see that there's a fourth one that's classified. Okay, if you know, if you understand storytelling, that's going to be a big deal later on. I, I like just you get a lot of things very quickly, very efficiently, and it's fun the way they portray it. You know, I, I love Bob. I fucking love this guy. And, you know, the whole New Year's party where they're kissing him on the visor and all that. Yeah, that, I I agree. It's efficient, but it's also fun and comedic and still jabbing corporate culture. This time, the R&D division, you know, software techs making this killing machine. And let's talk about the RoboCop suit. I mean, this is an awesome, awesome design. I said at the beginning of this podcast, I've had a RoboCop figure on my desk for a decade, the McFarlane one that came out in the early 2000s. This is an awesome suit. I mean, I realize now looking back, that it is taking from Iron Man and Batman and all that the stuff, but the blue metal sheen to it with the black, it just really works as an effective visual. And combined with the great sound effects, the hydraulics and the bass thump every time he steps, I think it's this look as much as anything that makes this film still the hit it was. Oh, yeah, and you know what? They did start with actually Judge Dredd. That was their starting point. But yeah, they did consider Iron Man and a lot of those comic book outfits to get this. This was a sore point. It took him forever to build this suit and finalize the design. Vorhoven and Botine, who designed the suit, they weren't even on talking terms by the time they needed the suit to film. Uh, it, it was just, I guess, such a nightmare designing and arguments over how it looked. But this final product, they say it took 11 to 12 hours to get Weller into this thing. Well, it's I guess it's worth it. It looks great, I think. I love the way the light shines off of it. You always have this, like, metallic, purplish-blue hue to it. And let's just point out, you said Botine, Rob Botine, The Thing. The 1982 The Thing. I mean, this guy knows how to do practical visuals like no one else in my mind. Yeah, it's a great merging of flesh. You can see that it's the actor, and they didn't have CGI back then. It's believable. It's in the same space as them. I wonder what they're going to do for the new one. I haven't seen too much of the suit, but it looks like they're going for Batman or, or something else. They're going for a different vibe here. Here, they're really selling the monstrosity of the metal. You really feel like this man is encaged and trapped in metal. And I'm feeling for him. Again, we haven't spent any time with Peter Weller, but because of all the bad misfortune he's falling, that all the misfortune that's happening to him, my heart is always with him. It would be horrible to wake up in this suit. It's you know, Some people may play this and you might think, wow, I'm RoboCop. It's cool. To me, this is a nightmare. It's a tragedy. I'm going to go down on the side of cool. And maybe because I watched this as a kid, but... This is a superhero film, isn't it? Isn't this like every Marvel and DC movie ever? You start off with your normal person, some trauma happens to them, be it falling into a bat cave or having cosmic rays bombard you or getting bitten by a spider, 
and the next thing you know, you're now able to fight crime on a whole other level. I mean, yes, it's a bit more tragic, like, I guess, the thing from the Fantastic Four, because he can't be human again, right. but it's very comic book. Yeah, no, it is, and they were all aware of that. I think the major difference is he doesn't get a choice of how he's going to act. You know, the thing that makes Spider-Man so great is that he kind of abuses his powers when he first gets him. He learns that with great power comes great responsibility. And I think you get that, especially in a lot of the Marvel comic book heroes here, though, it, he's a program. He doesn't think. Yeah, that's the question that will remain for the rest of the movie, maybe the rest of the series is how much of Murphy is left. Is he just uh, a face stretched over machines i think the only reason why we think that there is anything of the old him still here is he does that dj laser trick you know that he showed outside the coffee shop to his partner that he could imitate this cop show to impress his son well here he does it for real this time he is dj laser now tj like tj hooker oh well i guess that makes more sense than <laughs> dj <laughs> Although I wouldn't mind if he started scratching some records. And that is the pathos of this. I mean, when he's first RoboCop, he is just RoboCop, and he is as programmed as Ed 209. We see that on his first night on patrol. I think it's really driven home when he stops a rape by shooting the attempted rapist in the cock. And when the woman is, like, trying to thank him, he's just, I will call, a rape crisis center. I mean, it's not that different from Ed 209, except it's killing the right people. Yeah, and I think it does comes off humorous. Not that a woman's almost raped, but, you know, she's throwing herself on him. And he's like, I will call you a rape crisis. You know, you are in shock. I think that's funny because there we get, I think, that real conflict between human and robotics. You know, Ed 209, that, that's obviously just a murdering machine. Like, there, we never get a sense that it's going to try to console us. But we see Robocop try to console this person here, and it's just so robotic. It, we do wonder, is there anything human in him? You know, I find it funny when he stops this drugstore robbery. When he stops this convenience store robbery, I always felt this was a parody. You get this guy he's shooting this machine gun, the bullets ricocheting off of Robocop's armor, like just blowing everything up, throws this guy through the refrigerator. He had to cause more damage than was actually in that little safe. I mean, these people we couldn't be making that much money. I always just thought Verhoeven again, he's having fun with it. He, he's making us laugh, but there's, there's something deeper to it. And that's what I enjoy so much about this film. I think you could see it one of two ways. I think the easier way to see it, maybe the younger way of seeing it is, wow, now with all of this stuff, he can do really cool things. Me as the adult returning to this movie is, oh my God, he has been absorbed into the machine and his whole solutions, yeah, is more destruction. I mean, does he help these people? I suppose. I mean, he stops the robber. He saves the woman from being assaulted. But at what cost? I mean, it's so brutal that the cure is almost as bad as the problem. Kind of. I mean, Robocop is big on wanton destruction of property. But I really was looking at it this time. And of course, this is again part of the satire. I mean, this is a poking fun of a police state in its most extreme form is that you obey the law or you have this coming after you, this robotic Gestapo. But by the same token, you talk about the convenience store, Jacob. I got the feeling that he might have ended up killing those people in the convenience store after he got the money. And if it comes down to it, if somebody's going to kill me 
or they're going to wreck my car. I'd rather have them wreck my car so I can live to mourn it. Yeah, no, I obviously, obviously they play it so that A, it's funny, and B, he does heroic things. So we're on Robocop's side. We're rooting for him, I guess. And yet, I want to stress, I'm not experiencing this like a superhero story where someone is now in, empowered to be the best that they can be. I feel really bad still for Murphy here. I think about actually Clockwork Orange and the way that all of that conditioning turned a man into a victim, a less sympathetic man, but still a similar situation of, of a bureaucracy that has tainted someone. And I don't know. I'm, I'm experiencing this more as a comedy, a dark, dark comedy than I am as a action movie or, or a superhero that I'm rooting for. Yeah. At 12 years old, this is all about the badass shooting and action and, you know, guys getting shot in the cock. But, you know, I watch this now. It's a much more academic level. And I, I mean that seriously. Like, I talk about the crucifixion. He's been resurrected. Here's satire, again, on American religion. Like how, you know, how you take these Christians who believe in the Prince of Peace, Jesus Christ, and here's this version, this American version of Jesus, and he's going around just blowing everyone up. He's not trying to, you know, there, there's a hostage situation. He's not trying to do negotiations. He's busting through the wall, throwing the guy out the window. Well, I'm not sure how far we can really take this Christ metaphor, because... He will walk on water by the end of this film. I'm aware of that, but Murphy didn't die for our sins. Murphy died well, because... Well, in a way. He, I mean, you could eh. say it. As a, a cop, he is putting his life on his line for the public good. It's weird. I didn't take it that way. I can honestly say, watching this movie, I was not thinking that this was a Jesus story. To me, it was, you know, his death wish, that he was Charles Bronson, the pacifist, who has been turned into a killer, and while we're rooting for him to get back at the people that hurt him, he's also lost his soul. That is something that I think really plays in the second half of the movie, but during these scenes, I'm going with the ultraviolence. I'm not mourning Murphy at this point in the movie. When he's out there stopping the rapist, I'm thinking of him as super cop, because you don't think about the pain. The movie doesn't sell you his pain yet. And I didn't get, at this point, anything in the movie telling me that there would be a reason to mourn him. At this point, you could think that Murphy is dead, and everything that Murphy was would be dead, and whether or not they made a robot out of his parts, is there any Murphy left? It's a question, but I don't feel bad for him until he finishes his night on patrol and starts having dreams, and... You know, it goes back to the Shakespeare line, were it not that I have bad dreams. Robocop could police forever, were it not that he have bad dreams. And that's when he starts getting up and going a little bit off program and starts to research his own life and the gang that killed him. And aided by Lewis, who recognizes him from the jawline and the few hours they spent together. I thought it was because I was wondering this, because he twirled the gun at the yes. shooting range. That's what I took it. Yes. Okay. It was the TJ laser trick. He had just finished telling her that before he got shot. Convenient. Okay. Yeah, it's efficient. <laughs> That's how these movies yeah, go. it's a 90-minute movie. I remember the days when we had 90-minute movies. They got it all done in, in an hour and a half. I bet you the new one has a whole lot more Murphy before he gets in the suit. That's what I was saying earlier. That if this was done by less talented folks, I don't want to say this reboot, I, I have any opinion of it, I don't, but I could see spending 45 minutes 
with Murphy to try to get us on his side instead of what they did in this film. Yeah, they'll tr- they and they should approach it a different way. It would be a fool's game to remake Vorhoven. They have to make RoboCop in their own image. And so, good luck to them. But yes, I agree with you. I'm saying the same thing as you, Arnie, but with a different emphasis. I'm saying that even though I recognize that what has happened is horrific, I'm going along with the story because there's a sense of fun to it, because of the comedy that's going on, because the hostage guy is screaming that he wants a cool car with shitty gas mileage and all of that. <laughs> because I'm laughing, I'm going with it. You're right. Until we see, have him finish and sit in the chair, we're not asked to dramatically consider what has happened to Murphy until that moment. But it's always on my mind as an adult. Yeah, and I think it would be foolish to try to get us to take this seriously. I mean, especially now as an older adult really? watching this. Really? It would be foolish to get us to take this seriously? How many superhero movies like Iron Man have we watched <laughs> where we take this very thing seriously? How many of those have I recommended? About 50%. <laughs> More than me. <laughs> yes, more than Stuart. <laughs> more than me, comic book fan. <laughs> And yet the Nolan ones, where they were taken the most seriously, were my favorite ones. So, yes, perhaps there is a bit of irony there, or incongruity. But maybe it's because I've grown up with this film and seen it so many times, that humor is vital to this film. The the violence, the humor, all of that. I, I It'd be really weird to see this as a straight action film now. Yeah, so that I completely agree. And to be honest, I have a hard time separating this out. Because even though I hadn't seen this movie in a long time, because I watched it so goddamn much as a teenager, I almost didn't need to watch it for this review. I watched it because I enjoyed watching it, but... Everything in this movie is so familiar to me, it was hard to parse it out and judge it in that way, if that makes sense. So the humor that's there, yes, I I had a hard time realizing it for being as inventive as it is because they're jokes that I've seen for well over half my life. But it is a smart way of doing this. It is adding so much more to this type of story. I mean, again... We have reviewed this story 200 times, but this is perhaps one of the smartest takes on it that focuses most on the people in a movie titled RoboCop. And it's way it just comments on society. I mean, you mentioned Google Glass, Jacob, but you really think about this. How much are we imbibing ourselves with tech? I speak to you right now with two tablets around me wearing a monitor on my wrist that monitors my pulse, my oxygen, and my every movement, how far into robotics are we going to take ourselves? I mean, Isaac Asimov asked this question first, but it is still very much relevant of the time. Despite this movie being almost 30 years old, it feels very relevant to today's society particularly since detroit could use some help and yeah i am still in the back (laughs) of my mind wondering for all of these problems for murphy is detroit getting better from this it seems to be maybe he will single-handedly clean up this town what becomes interesting and is in the supporting storyline when we go back to the executives we really learn that Ronnie Cox is actually wanting to perpetuate crime, that there is no real plan to get rid of crime, that Delta City will be run just as badly as Detroit. That is one plot that makes no sense to me. Ronnie Cox, senior vice president, second in command of OCP, why is he selling drugs? (laughs) 
I see it as a conspiracy theorist dream that, of course, the head of law enforcement would be in cahoots with the head of crime to always perpetuate their businesses so that they'll always be booming, you know, like they need each other. And and that's the way the relationship I see is that he wants to spend money and live lavishly and build all of his Ed 209s. So in order to ensure that he needs to have a force on the streets bad enough That's Boddicker's job to justify that bottom line. And so there's a cyclical yin-yang relationship to crime and punishment. Yeah, I don't think that's too much of a stretch. I mean, there is a lot of Vietnam-era politics still going on in this film. The scientist who controls Ed 209, Dr. McNamara, you know, straight from the Vietnam era. And come on, there's conspiracies about, you know, body bags full of heroin coming back over that we were using that war to smuggle drugs back into the country. I mean, yeah, there's a lot of conspiracy, but I think it is really of that time. You know, the the 80s where we were becoming more aware of what was going on in Vietnam and, you know, just that all that paranoia of corporations and, and all of that is wrapped up in this film. Oh, that's interesting. And yeah, I want to see this movie again. I I forgot that context, but you're right. That must be part of that 70s vibe that I'm picking up on is that level of paranoia. But yeah, it's coming through in the subplot. It is uh, far-fetched, certainly, but because we have all of this comedy, because we're in a satirical world, I go with it. I, I can buy the fact that that Boddicker is essentially an agent of Ronnie Cox, who is, I guess, the real evil here. And I love the way it's revealed, though, because we find this out when Bob has finally pissed off Dick Jones enough and said enough bad things about him in the men's room that he sends Clarence to kill Bob and bitches leave. (laughs) Yeah, again, Miguel Ferrer, I I didn't know how to feel about him. Uh, I, I, I do obviously have empathy when he gets shot up, but at the same time, he is essentially getting the same treatment that... He put Murphy through, so is it poetic justice? Are we okay that this guy dies? I guess I'm mostly okay with it, but without him, I do wonder what's going to happen to the Robocop program. Really? His second in command there, Johnson, is the one who profits most from all of this. Johnson was Bob's friend, and by the time it's all over, Dick Jones is dead too. <laughs> Maybe it's a, a truth of corporate America. If you hang in the background long enough, the sharks will kill each other and you can rise to the top. But that <laughs> certainly seems to what happen is just by process of elimination, he'll uh, survive uh, and make it to the end, whereas just about everyone else is annihilated here. This is a very nihilistic movie. And again, that's why I say it feels more 70s than 80s. 80s movies weren't this punishing. They weren't this cynical and brutal. And again, I credit that to Verhoeven. That it sounds like his life experience from what I've been able to read about him. Again, going through World War II and having bombings going off or all around him. And I mean, if you study anything about World War II and, you know, Europe after, I mean, that profoundly affected Europe and made them more cynical. So I see him bringing that. Whereas, you know, we were the Americans. We went in and saved and defeated them Nazis. We feel much better about that war where it really devastated Europe. Right. They were invaded. Yeah. Yeah. I think one of the moments that really displays this is when Robocop finds Emil holding up a gas station. And it's, you know, this guy, he's studying geometry. He's, he's like, you a college boy? You know, basically, it doesn't matter how smart you are. I could shoot you with my gun. Your learning doesn't mean anything. That, yeah, it's a very dark, cynical take. Well, I don't know. I mean, you're taking the threats of a robber to the nth degree of intent there. Yes, 
it is intimidation tactics. I wouldn't say that Emil is speaking for the film, saying that no matter how smart you are, everyone can be gunned down. I, it, it, That's how film works, Arnie. You have these moments like this. You have lines like this. Yeah, it doesn't. It's not a big theme, but I think there are moments like this that justify that. I I think Emil having that guy studying his college homework and having saying, "I could shoot you with this gun. It doesn't matter. You know, can your geometry help you dodge a bullet?" I, I think that is trying to set a tone. I just think the tone is how under the thumb of crime the city is. But I do like this scene. I mean, this is the big set piece from the trailer. I remember the fight at the gas station, the exploding gas station, and Robocop keeps coming out. I mean, we mentioned Terminator. He is the Terminator here. The difference is, in this case, we're rooting for the Terminator. Yeah, I do find this kind of forward thinking. Uh, Stuart, I know it's a big thing for you. Americans are afraid of technology and, you know, mm-hmm. Terminator and we're 2001. We're afraid of the robot. Here, we're rooting for the robot. He is the good guy. Well, that's the balance. I wouldn't say that this movie is selling me that because, again, I'm experiencing this as an adult as it's really terrible what's happened to Murphy. But, yes, we are rooting for him to get justice. I still want the man that was gunned down to get everyone that put him in the ground. That's what I'm rooting for. That said, once he's done that, am I rooting for RoboCop to pave the way for a crime-free Delta City? Not sure yet. I'll save those thoughts for the sequel. I do find it very interesting how RoboCop basically embraces police brutality to hunt down his own killer. I mean, if his prime directives are uphold the law, he's certainly bending that directive in his interrogation tactics. And that's a a trope of any buddy cop movie. I mean, we haven't really covered them, which is weird because there's so many buddy cop movies. But if we were to cover any buddy cop franchise, there's always one that breaks the rules to get it done. You know, Dirty Harry or Lethal Weapon. Sometimes it's more comedic or sometimes it's more serious. But yeah, there's always people that they have their own version of the law and that's what they practice. And sometimes it creates tension within the precinct. But I think the change is here. When he faces Emil, he finds out this is, you know, one of his killers. He says, dead or alive, you're coming with me. And Emil's like, I shot you. He recognizes that's Murphy. And you see that glitch. Murphy shuts down for a second. And I think that is the real change here is during this gas station scene where Robocop, you know, we'll see in a later scene when he goes to Yabotiker, he's reading the Miranda rights about throwing him through plates of glass. It's very violent, but I think it's because it's on a personal level by that point. The programming has gone wrong. Those directives aren't quite holding. But that's not Murphy coming through. My sense is watching him do that, that the violence that he's putting Emil through and later the other ones, is that Murphy getting his vengeance or is that just because he's a machine that's more strong and powerful and can exert that level of force? That's a good question. I mean, I if you look at what OCP designs with Ed 209, it could be thought that Every machine they design is going to have this ultra-violent streak, or it could be Murphy. I think that's up for interpretation. And I think, you know, when he goes after Emil, that, that's a shootout. There's that huge explosion. Almost got the film shut down. It was so big. It started other buildings on fire. <laughs> but it was really, there's a scene in between apprehending Emil and getting Boddicker, and that's where Murphy goes back to his old house and starts having flashbacks of his wife and kid. 
Yeah, I really like that scene. I did not remember that at all. It was no memory that he pursued his former life, but we need that. I mean, that's obviously the character's journey here is how much of his former self matters now. And yeah, I love it. I mean, it's both funny. You know, they have the realtor is a snarky face on a TV, and yet it's sad. You know, the the memories that it evokes are, are of something he can never have again. Yeah, I do find it weird that this house is so run down that they're trying to sell, but I guess that's what happens when you have a realtor on a TV. And a cop's salary. Yeah, they threw her out the next day. I don't know how long it's taken the RoboCop to get online, but it was only a matter of weeks. I mean, they threw her out quick. There was no mercy, but this is a town of no mercy. (laughs) And the thing that I love is that I remember from when the first time I saw this movie, we see these first memories of Murphy, and it's his wife. And she's like, I have to talk to you. And it's like she's really upset. And you're like, well, were they fighting? You know, what's going on? And then when he gets there and the memory plays out, she was telling him she loves him, but just kind of doing it in a bit of a jokey way to begin with, to make him think he's, he'd done something wrong. And it's just so touching a moment because it's unexpected. It leaves a mystery early on. What were they fighting about? And then when you find out, it's heartbreaking. Yeah, and shocker, or maybe not shocker, if you know how Hollywood works, the studio didn't want this scene in there. This is the scene that Paul Borhoven read when he actually sat down to read the whole screenplay that got him to want to do the movie. He just thought this was such a powerfully emotional scene. This is where it all came together. This is what Robocop is about. He's trying to regain this lost paradise, this lost family, this lost life that he had. And, of course, the studio's like, ah, it slows it down. Let's cut it. And he had to fight for this scene. No, yeah, that would be a shame. No, this is the scene that gives it the whole theme. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this Arnie goes back to when we talked about Karate Kid and the whole scene where you find about Mr. Miyagi being in an internment camp and losing his family. And like, that's such an emotional scene. But no, Hollywood doesn't like this stuff, apparently. I get it. One, you know, you're trying to sell an action movie. You want to keep things exciting. Cut to the chase is a cliche. And that's probably what they wanted to do. But no, if we don't care about the people that are involved, we won't care about the chases. It'll just be noise and flash. And it will be be outdated when they have better special effects we still care about this because we still care about murphy and yeah i find him highly sympathetic even more so now and he never has a scene with that wife those two actors never have a scene together and yet i believe the whole lost love affair you see you keep talking about how you feel for murphy stewart but that really doesn't come for me until the end i mean after he's tracked down clarence and thrown him through the windows and clarence points him to dick jones it's when Murphy is about to finally have his ultimate revenge in a Dirty Harry movie. Finding out Dick Jones was behind him and going for that showdown would be the end of the movie. That would be the big twist. Dick Jones is in on it. And then you go and you arrest him. But in this movie, there's still so much more to go because this is the moment when he realizes what the robotics have done to him. While Murphy may have been surfacing more and more in the RoboCop persona, you can't beat that fourth directive, never arrest a senior OCP employee. We don't care about the lackeys, but a senior. Well, you need those lackeys to take the rap for you. It's okay to arrest them. Yeah, this is corruption of power. I could support a RoboCop system, I think, eventually, if they worked out all the bugs, 
that it would be an administration of, of justice. As imperfect as it is, it, all systems of justice are imperfect, but that they can program it to protect the people up top, that it can essentially make the people that control him turn him into their servant. Yeah, this is how you know that the Robocop program is terrible now. We need Murphy to exact his free will on this device because the robot part of him is forever corrupt. And this is where... I think Murphy gets it harder here three quarters of the way in the movie than he does when he gets killed. I mean, Ed 209 kicks his ass. He barely escapes by Ed not being able to do stairs. Hysterical scene. I mean, in the midst of tragedy, Ed 209 brings the funny. Yeah, I love the animation. And the screenplay just said Ed 209 falls down the stairs. I mean, this was all the stop motion animators coming up with, you know, it kind of like dipping its toe, like trying to find that step and the way it squeals like a baby. I mean, this was what makes it fun. Hey, Phil Tippett. Phil Tippett's the man. Dark Overlord, Phil Tippett. (laughs) (laughs) That's what you're giving him credit for. Ah, the Dark Overlord. It always does come back to that. Well, yeah, you know what? I think that some younger viewers may have problems with these special effects, but I hope not. Because for me, it's part of the charm. I know they have problems with it. I've read things, you know, yeah, it's a pretty good movie, but RoboCop 2014 is going to have such better special effects. They suck so bad. I've, I've already read it on message boards. As the special effects snob, I'll tell you, these scenes with Ed 209, I love the personality Ed 209 has, but I will be a lot more forgiving of bad CGI if it means I never have to look at Clash of the Titans Calibos-type stop motion again. <laughs> I will split the difference. It is dated, but it's because there's so much personality in that Ed 209 that I'm willing to forgive it. For That is where I am too, Jacob. The personality makes it worth it and everything, but wow. <laughs> it's just, I didn't remember that the state-of-the-art special effects in 1987 were so crappy. I remember even thinking that these effects weren't good back then, but I enjoy that. To me, it makes it feel more midnight movie. It makes me think that I am watching something that is not shiny in Hollywood. Sometimes you don't want it to look perfect. Sometimes you want it to look cruddy and rusted and imperfect. And I think that any time that you see that it's special effects, I think it just enhances the satirical and the fun of it. I would not want them to have more money to make it look better. I would not want them to come back and digitally clean all of this up. I actually would. I kept finding myself when I'm watching this... Wishing RoboCop was a big enough movie to get a George Lucas-esque type special edition where they'd fix some of the coloring in the rear projection scenes. and No, you'd lose what the movie's soul is. I mean... No! I really... yeah, you would I... not lose the soul by cleaning up some of the effects. You would for me. For me, part of the fun is that it's this thumbing of establishment. If you have clean special effects, that just makes it an establishment project. It just feels corporate at that point. I like that it's midnight movie. I might. I might be able to go, if they did the CGI exactly the same, I might be able to go for that. But there are so many little things, you know, like the animation. And there is something about it that fits with this film. I love the way when Robocop's fighting Ed 209, you know, his helmet gets cracked. We slowly get his face revealed throughout this film. You know, as we go from Robocop to Murphy, he starts with the full helmet. And this is the first time there's that great, it's just a split second shot, but it's RoboCop looking through this hole and you just see this eyeball sticking out looking at Ed 209. There's just little details like that, the little animation things that really putting together as a whole really make this film what it is. 
Yeah, we we really get back to Murphy after this point. You know, he has this horrible. His own men are shooting at him, and oh, it's a heart wrenching scene. The pose he's doing when he's on the ground crawling, his arm in the air, and they're just charging. I mean, this is where my sympathies start coming in. Yeah, and now I'm starting to see these Christ parallels that you were talking about. I don't know why I missed them the first time, but yes, his people turn against him, and he's an outcast, and it's only because of Nancy Allen, of all people. I've almost forgotten she was in the movie, but she now serves a function here. I do like the fact that he's still in love with his wife, that they do not have a romance here. I think it might have been very tempting for them to want to throw that in here. I think in any other buddy cop movie where it's a guy and a girl they would do that they don't do it here she's more like a mother figure you know she feeds him she nurses him back to life she takes the metal away so that we can see what's left of his face that's a shocking image too oh that was nightmare giving and again robotine the way he can merge flesh with makeup i can't see the seams to this day on my home theater, I cannot see the seams of Peter Weller's face and where it becomes the makeup. It is so well done there. Yeah, just that image of that flesh being stretched over that whatever the robotic innards are, it is horrifying. The rivet in the forehead is what gets me, you know, where you yeah. just see they like screwed the flesh down. It's Hellraiser-ish almost. Yeah. But you mentioned the romance, and I took the scene where she brings him his food. They say early on his food is this rudimentary paste. It tastes like baby food. So she brings him baby food, and it's got the pictures of the baby on the jar, and instead of eating it, he uses it for target practice, and he's shooting the baby. I take that as they could have had a romance if he was human. He's not, so he has to kill the baby. You must have listened to the commentary. That That's exactly what Vorhoven is trying to get across. I listened to it when the movie came out 15 years ago, so maybe <laughs> that was somewhere in my subconscious, but that's what I was thinking. He wanted to eliminate the idea of any kind of romance between these two. And, and so, yes, RoboCop literally shoots babies. Well, I saw her feeding baby food to him as her playing that kind of role for him. We know who he loves, and he can't have that. It's that woman, and that they never share a scene here. It's powerful. I'm curious to know if she'll come back in the future, because that's a relationship that really you want to know. You want a sequel just to see what Murphy RoboCop is going to do about that woman out there. That's his wife and his son. It's not for Lewis to fill in that gap. That has to be played by someone else. But where she takes him to recover or repair himself as best he can is where they get ambushed again because Boddicker gets the gang back together. You know, they've been taken out one by one. Robocop's arrested Ray Wise and Emil and... They finally all get sprung because Clarence pulls the strings and they get this military grade rail gun. And that is just a kick ass weapon. And I love just the way that Verhoeven has built this entire reality through its weaponry, its cars, its everything that when these guns come out, it really has an impact that you know there's now a gun that can kill Robocop. I like it! I remember that quote for some reason. I think it was in the trailer or something, but, but yeah, it is very, very cool. I, I, I like just the payout of that joke of the car too. The 6,000, we saw the car commercial at this point. We saw the hostage situation where he requested it, and now we actually see the car and it gets blown up. A lot of fun. I love, love the way that those little details, Acapulco, just all the ways that they work in those little side bits. What should just be filler makes it feel like a total world here. It's, it's great. But yeah, the cops are on strike. It's worth pointing out that there is nobody to protect the city anymore. It, crime is running loose. 
And the showdown with RoboCop, though, I mean, there's only four people left in the gang. They started with six or seven in the beginning. But these four heavily armed go after him. And, I mean, the guy Joe with that wonderful laugh, that just iconic <laughs> to me laugh from this movie, he's taken out really quick. I couldn't remember watching this movie how he died. It's because it's so unremarkable. It's just he's the first one RoboCop shoots. It's always the black guy, isn't it? Yeah. I, I lose track of a lot of them here. If, if Ray Wise wasn't Ray Wise... I wouldn't have remembered how he gets it either. I, I The only death truly that that's memorable in this one, and it's the image that I carried with me for the 30-some years it's been since I've seen RoboCop, <laughs> is the Wicked Witch of the West death that Emil gets with the toxic waste. Yeah, they actually do call him the Melting Man when they're referring to this scene. A scene that the studio actually did fight to keep in when he gets ran over and liquefies. The MPAA is like, no way. That's not going to be in this film. And they fought for it, and it stayed. It was the highest-tested scene in the whole movie when they tested this with audiences. <laughs> it's what I remembered. I remember that scene from before I saw this movie. I was interested in RoboCop, and I was a big reader of Fangoria, and they had all of these articles about RoboCop and how they did the special effects. And one time the cover was the melting man. And I'm trying to figure out how the hell this guy could exist in a RoboCop movie. I didn't get that it's just near death gangster. I thought this was some creature that would be roaming around the entire movie, but it is such this, oh, it, it is nightmare inducing. I remember in my teen years, just like, I was so afraid of toxic waste anyway, thanks to this movie yes. and Friday the 13th yes. Part 8. You lived in the 80s. It was a fear, a rational one. There were toxic waste going through the sewers of New York. There were big vats of it and steel mills just waiting for your car to hit it. So this was really, when I was younger, this was the most horrific thing in the film. Now Murphy is, but... Oh, just so grotesque. And when he gets hit by the car, he just liquefies. They turn on the wipers. Yeah, yeah. I love that his head, you see his head like roll over the car and the rest of him just like, it's like a water balloon popping. It's, it's such a weird image for this film and so late in it. You know, we've been dealing with robots and, you know, all that. And all of a sudden now we have the toxic Avenger running around in the film, but it works. Moreover, the writers, whoever, they, they were able to pull it off and make it seem like it fit at this part. Yeah, it is a testament to that creative team, both the direction and the screenwriting, that it never goes too far. Usually I feel like some jokes thud. Here, I never really do feel like they, they go too far with any joke. Everyone is on the same page. Yeah, they take all the jokes to 11, so therefore none can feel like they go too far. Right, yeah, I think you're right. I do love how Clarence gets it, though. I really do. I've just love that RoboCop, he has this R2-D2-like accessory that allows him to jack into computers, but it helps that it's a giant spike. Yeah, and it looks like a middle finger. When it's first introduced, it's for comedic effect. It looks like he's flipping off the people that are telling him he can't have access to his files. I wish I had a metal spike that could be used as a weapon and jack into the internet to look at porn. That, like, that is a fantasy of mine. I will admit that. <laughs> Was that a pun, jack into the internet for porn? <laughs> yes. Better than the opposable thumb. <laughs> Here's what I find amazing. I always assumed that that was a spike because they had to set up this scene. No, that that was like, they're like, well, how is he going to kill Boddicker here at the end? They're like, oh, yeah, he does have this spike that we built into him to get into the 
you know, computer system. Let's have him use that. That blows me away that you give the dude a giant metal spike and that wasn't a setup for killing at the end. <laughs> Sometimes it comes to people late. I, I know that there's a story about Casablanca where they didn't know what they were going to do when they got to the airport. I mean, sometimes it just all comes together and it's perfect. And it is perfect that it gets him in this way. Because you really do think, with, with the way that he's staking him here, that Robocop, well, you know he's not going to lose, but you, you can't see how he's going to get out of it. And I wasn't thinking about it. It was the perfect solution. I like that Clarence's death is painful. I mean, the blood is just spurting from his jugular. This is the guy who took Murphy's hand and then his head. So he needs a death like this. And you want to see, again, see this in the unrated, X-rated version, because it is so much more graphic. It does feel so so much more satisfying, I guess, to us Americans who need this violent type of justice to really see that spike go in. In the theatrical cut, it's kind of done from a distance off screen. You don't really get a good look at it. And then my favorite line in the whole movie, you know, let's not forget the fact that the woman has taken a huge beating. Yeah, more than they normally would. She is just there being like, oh, Murphy, I'm a mess. And you can believe it. She may not live it. And his reply is just, it's pitch perfect. They'll fix you. They fix everything. I mean, it's just really a funny statement about progress in this universe. I mean, yeah, you might get the treatment that he did. If you want to call that fixing, well... I guess it depends on which connotation of fixing you, you want to take. And that was going to be my question. Was that your interpretation of they'll fix you, that they'll turn her into a RoboCop? I don't know that I literally thought she would turn into a RoboCop, but just that he is cynical enough to realize that whatever they're going to do to help her may in fact just kill her. I mean, it makes us wonder in that moment how much of Murphy is there watching all of this and, and what he feels about what he's become. Willard does give an ironic tone to the way he says it the film producers were actually worried that we might think that she was going to be turned into a robocop at the end of the film and they had the whole end sequence done as another news piece where you see that she's all right that they didn't put robotics into her but that, that was on their mind that people might take it that way i didn't when i was 13 i don't think i thought a whole lot about nancy allen in this movie <laughs> much at all i was far more interested in dick jones robocop leaves nancy allen in the steel mill and so do i let's go to ocb <laughs> yeah there's one more bad guy to take down Boddicker was was only the sub bad guy there's dick jones and he's getting his way you know with robocop and in shambles uh, i guess he figures that with no other choice the old man's going to go for ed 209 yeah, if Arnie, if there's any special effect I could fix here, if there's just one replaced with CGI, it would be this explosion. And here's the reason it's so bad. This was filmed at the Dallas City Hall, and they didn't want big explosions going off at City Hall. Yeah. So especially after that gas station explosion, they really had to tone it down and then do other takes and try to edit it in there. It does come off pretty bad. I thought you were jumping ahead because I thought you were going to talk about Dick Jones falling out that window because that's that's <laughs> the worst. That's even worse than that explosion. That, you may be right. <laughs> but you know what I love about that scene is he goes up there and RoboCop jacks into the computer system. If there's one thing I'd change, I, I think we need to get Gus Van Sant to do a shot-for-shot -shot remake of RoboCop just so we get a flat-screen monitors every place they put a CRT. <laughs> <laughs> but he jacks into that giant Mike Tyson-like, if you guys knew Mike Tyson's house in 1987, TV grid. To I was show hanging out there all the time. <laughs> I was. I, I just lusted after Mike Tyson's TV wall. <laughs> And that's what this reminds me of. Yeah, perhaps now they could have the curved Samsung that <laughs> Michael Bay can't sell. 
But he jacks in and he reveals the tape of Dick Jones confessing. And who do they cut to? Who is it who looks more pissed than anybody else? Johnson. Yes! <laughs> and Johnson is like, you killed my friend! Johnson's face is hysterical. This dude doesn't need to say a thing, just the looks he gives. I'm always laughing at I him. I know, they cut to him like they cut to a dog in a comedy film. <laughs> he is truly the Greek choir of RoboCop. <laughs> Yeah, I like how they get around the the Prime Directive 4. I mean, he didn't get reprogrammed. He, he still got that programming in him. He's still going to be a corrupted police officer should he be put back on the street. But, hey, fire the guy and he's no longer OCP. He can kill him. Yeah, I guess you don't have to wait for HR paperwork or anything to go through. No. I, I love that RoboCop says, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> that is the <laughs> nicest part of it all is he's like, now I can do it. And, and, and then, then again, Johnson, Johnson with his thumbs up. Yeah, Johnson's like cheering. <laughs> <laughs> but hey, maybe it's not perfect, but the out the window, it's a grand death. And it's a year before they do it again in Die Hard. I think they perfected it in the year that came after. And then they did it badly again in Batman. Yeah, true. That's right. <laughs> the 80s, a bad time to be near high windows. But Johnson was cheering. Were we? Jacob Stewart, do you recommend RoboCop? Jacob. Oh, come on. I I, I think it already goes that, yes, I am going to recommend this film. But here's, uh, you know, let me talk a little bit about why, because that's what we do with these recommends. You know, there is something, and again, I think so much of it comes from this film. You know, Mad Max was another big influence on me. There's something that I love about lowbrow entertainment. Stewart, you kept saying this should be like a midnight cult movie, and so much of it is shot that way, but... This is a studio movie. This was like a, a big film. They wanted to make lots of money. You know, it, I think it did for its time. But there's something I love when about lowbrow entertainment when it, it it's actually layered, multi-layered, and it's saying something. You know, it's similar to Dawn of the Dead, where you're taking something that seems like it should be for 13-year-old boys, but you're actually elevating it, and you're smart enough to look for symbolism and and look for the satire. I mean, there's so much going on in this film. What blows me away that so much satire skewering, you know, American religion, American sense of justice, you know, corporations, the government, there's so much going on. This could have just been a mess of a film. I think Vorhoven, he had a vision and as the director, he brought that in. He saw certain things in the script and he's able to direct the film a certain way that makes it work. And I really think, you know, if the last time you saw this film, you were, you know, 13, it was a cool action film. I really think this is one you need to revisit and really look into. There is so much going on. You know, Arnie, you had all your Nightmare on Elm Street college papers. If you're in college, this film, there, there's so much going on. You, you could do, you know, papers for six or seven classes here. I, I guarantee it. High recommend. Like I said, one of my favorite films, strongest recommends for Robocop. Stuart. Yeah, I'm going to second that, although maybe not as excited as you, Jacob. I don't think I could be. Not one of my all-time favorite movies, but certainly is quite a delight to come back to something that you remember liking in childhood and finding it even more mature, having layers for you that you didn't absorb at that time. I think it works for the two halves of me. It works for that human side of me that just wants to see pulpy vigilante action. It works my brain side, too, the robot side. I think that it's a good hybrid of adult and kiddie entertainment. I mean, it's both 
pulpy, puerile, and really smart, good sci-fi that asks probing questions, some of which remain unanswered. I mean, I really am left wondering about poor Murphy. He is at least identifying here at the end that he is the human and not the Robocop. But what does that mean for his future? I mean, I really, it makes me want to know how the the sequels are going to go. We'll, we'll get there when they get there. But yeah, this is a strong recommend for me for Robocop. And I'm three for three on strong recommends. I don't have a lot more to say that you two didn't in your recommends. I mean, yes, it works on all those levels. It amused me as a 13-year-old just as a dark superhero film. It amused me as a later teen for its various looks at humanity. And it inspires me as an adult with its satire. And I can see where... At the time, maybe people didn't see it for the joke it was. I know that some people have called Verhoeven a fascist, and they look at this as a promotion of fascism. But if you get that, then you're just not realizing that it's all a very sarcastic look at it. And that is one of the things I love for it. The only thing we didn't really talk about that I also just want to really call out is the score by, I'm probably going to butcher the name, Basil Polidorus. I have been just humming this theme for so long since I rewatched this movie. It is just such a great anthem for RoboCop. I just absolutely love it. So since I can't really just parrot what you guys have already said, I'm going to sideline in here. And Jacob, if your goal is to get this in the top 250 of IMDb, my goal is to get people who like this to go try Starship Troopers. Because I watched... RoboCop 2, RoboCop 3, some of the RoboCop TV series, RoboCop Prime Directives, all trying to recapture what RoboCop had. And the best sequel to RoboCop is Starship Troopers, which flopped miserably and didn't deserve to. I will agree with you there, Arnie. I don't think there's as much going on, but yes, I will agree. That is Verhoeven's second best film. And if you like the satire and the vibe of RoboCop, yeah, Starship Troopers is the way to go. Yeah, I give a strong, strong recommend to RoboCop and a strong recommend to Starship Troopers, which I could see taking place in the same universe even, just a little bit further in the future. So, yes, RoboCop has influenced my film watching ever since. It is a film that I saw at a very impressionable age and will always be with me. So I really hope you have seen it. And if you haven't, just stop listening to podcasts and go watch the fucking movie. It's that good. It's a really strong recommend if I'm recommending it over me. I think it's Warhoven's best film that I've seen. I haven't seen some of his early foreign films, but yeah, I think he never got the balance right. I've seen Starship Troopers, and I like Total Recall and all that. I get that he he did this again. I don't think he ever did it better, but it doesn't have to be this good for me to keep recommending. What I'm wondering now is, will there be another Green Arrow? How can you say that? Next week... We're going to be talking an Irving Kirshner film, director of Empire Strikes Back, and written by Frank Miller, geek god, right? I saw this one, and I don't have strong memories of it, but what I remember isn't positive. So, you know what? If I came back to RoboCop and saw a much better film, I'm willing to believe that that's possible for the sequel. RoboCop 2, we'll find out next week. Yes, so Jacob Stewart, thank you for joining me. I'm so glad we had this chance to dialogue.
Excuse me. I have to go. Somewhere there is a crime happening. Thank you for joining us for Now Playing's RoboCop Retrospective Series. Bitches leave. Dead or alive, you're going to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week for a new movie review podcast. You have 20 seconds to comply. While there, join our forums to discuss this review with other listeners. Dead or alive, you are coming with me. So give me your money and all of it and don't fuck with me! Your support helps keep Now Playing on the air. The line's open. Waiting for your pledge. You can find a link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our homepage, nowplayingpodcast.com. Well, we need all the help we can get, young man. It's only money. You can also find a link to our cafe press store where you can buy t-shirts, coffee mugs, teddy bears, and much more. I'd buy that for a dollar. <laughs> now Playing is edited by Heath, Phil, Dylan, and Arnie. They'll fix you. They fix everything. Now Playing Credit Narration by Brock. Keep him talking. The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts and may not reflect the opinion of Inganza Media Incorporated. Though you may think you're having fun now, you only hurt the one you love. The movies discussed in this series are the properties of their respective trademark holders and no infringement is intended. It's a free society. Except there ain't nothing free, because there's no guarantees, you know? <laughs> You're on your own. <laughs> there's a lot of jungle. <laughs> now Playing is not affiliated with Orion Pictures, Metro, Goldwyn, Mayer, Columbia Pictures, Fireworks Entertainment, or any other creative entity involved with these films. We did what we had to do. Now Playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2014. All rights reserved, and no part of this show may be reproduced, repurposed, or redistributed without the written permission of Venganza Media Incorporated. Okay, Funzo. <laughs> <laughs> okay, let's get out of here. Good night, sweet prince. <laughs> But Total Recall is the one, I think, for me that, that defined my childhood. Well, yeah, that one has them. Arnold. This had Peter Weller. I mean, yeah. come on, no competition there. <laughs> Peter Weller wins hands down every time. Yeah. Screamers, a film that I really like. <laughs> what? I wasn't there to defend it at the time, so every time Screamers <laughs> comes up, I'm just going to give him the big green arrow there. Okay. <laughs> When's the last time you've seen Screamers, Arnie? <laughs> when you guys did the retrospective series. Wow. You saw it as an adult? I went to, I was watching right along with you, and then I heard your review. I'm like, fuck y'all, it's good! Wow. It's not great, but it's good. Eh, it was alright. Yeah, it's green arrowable. No. No. <laughs> it's alright, but not green arrowable. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, yes. Later with the coke and the hookers and certainly the way that he's insensitive about putting Murphy back together again. Did you hear my Wolf of Wall Street review? That doesn't necessarily make him a villain to me. <laughs> yeah, we know where you stand, Arnie. We, we got it. All of a sudden now we have toxic. We have the toxic. Ah, we have the toxic. What's really funny is I'm watching this with Marjorie and Marjorie hadn't seen Robocop in 20 years. And when that guy comes on, <laughs> I'll buy that for a dollar. She just turns to me and says, 
that's where you get this line from? <laughs> she didn't know. She didn't know. And wow. <laughs> I use that line so fucking often. <laughs> like, there is a, a like spam bot on Twitter that if you mention $1 – it will automatically reply with that. <laughs> I think I've had to block him because yeah. I do say that so yeah. often. 